Often when we hear the title Pharisee, we think of it in a very negative sense. Our minds go to a group of men who were more concerned about their political power and influence than recognizing the coming of their king. They were religious leaders who had figured out how to accomplish great social power and prestige by teaching the old Mosaic Covenant in such a way to manipulate God's people all the while they themselves would not keep it. We celebrated, as you will know, and we had a great one, Resurrection Sunday, last Lord's Day, and one of the questions that often comes to mind as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the week of, of his being in Jerusalem and coming and presenting himself as king, those, the question often arises in light of the tremendous outpouring of acceptance on Palm Sunday, where the people all cried out, Hosanna. Why is it that just a few days later, those same people are crying out, crucify him? Well, the answer is the heated exchanges between the conservative theological heroes of Jesus' day called the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus, all which happened on Monday and Tuesday at the Temple Mount. There are too many exchanges for us to point out this morning, but listen to this scathing condemnation, no doubt, that is behind those who are crying out, crucify him, of those scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Friends, although Jesus was confrontive on Monday and Tuesday, he was not fully opposed to all that the Pharisees said. He affirmed their role in teaching of the people in Matthew 23, verses 3 and 4, and, and said this, Therefore, all that they tell you, that is the scribes and Pharisees, Speaking to the people, he says this, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. Jesus, in this statement, all at once affirmed that the old covenant, at his first covenant, at his first coming, or, uh, uh, was still binding. It is still appropriate for the people to observe all that is in it, but the examples of what the Pharisees did was not worth following. They were hypocrites. And herein lies the tension found in the Gospels. Jesus was in opposition to the conservative Pharisees, not because of the content of what they said, but rather that which they did did not match that content. And we all feel this way, don't we, when we have somebody in our life who is supposed to be authoritative and maybe we look up to them and they are telling us how we ought to live, but yet we find later that they themselves are not living it out. So Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 to this crowd and these people in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And just a couple of verses later, Jesus would bring this tension between the Pharisees and himself and this tension between uh, doing and hearing to a head, saying, for I say to you that unless your righteousness 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, Jesus is affirming that one can fake looking good on the outside, but unless your inside is clean, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. You must be born of God. And to be so, one must exchange their unrighteousness that is deep on the inside and the sinful nature for the righteousness of Christ. We have arrived now at the last and final chapter of John, although I am going to say that we are not quite done with the series on perfected love. We're going to focus on verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and on our final message from this series called Perfective Love. If you have been uh, with us over the last three weeks, you will know that John is using the Greek word agape, which is translated as love in our English text. From chapter 4, verse 7 through 21, he used it 27 times, and the Holy Spirit is going to inspire him uh, as we read of today five more times in these three verses. In total, John will use agape 32 times in 17 verses, nearly twice a verse. Might be something for us to pay attention to, right? This agape love is generally not what we think of when we hear the word love, unlike our idea of love, God's love is settled and is manifested in his actions. You'll remember in 1 John 4, verse 9, John said this, By this, the love of God was manifested. It was made known to us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. Because of this example of God's love, John instructs the church back in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 7, saying this, giving them this commandment, let us then love one another. And therefore, the lack of love that we see or possibly see going on in a church or in a professing Christian's life becomes somewhat of a proof of their unregenerate nature. If they are not faithfully, selflessly serving the church, John is saying, how can the love of God exist in them? is not the first commanding proof of genuine Christianity that we have seen. In chapter 1, we learned that if one walks in darkness or says that they have no sin, they lie and the truth is not in them. In chapter 2, we learned that if one does not follow Christ's commands, hates another Christian, does not know the Jesus of the Bible, or they are in love with the things of the world, they are currently in darkness, blinded by it and lying about their faith. In chapter 3, we learn that no one who is born of God practices sin, and that because of this, a genuine Christian should not be surprised when the world hates them. Beloved, with these truths in mind, and especially the love of the local church, we might be tempted to somehow get pharisaical about how we are living our church life. We might go to these verses and we might see these commands and somehow uh, we might say, well, gosh, I got to work a little bit harder. I got to do a little bit more. I got to show up every time the doors are open. I've, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. And then pretty soon we feel burdened to be at church instead of blessed to be with the church. Let me say that 
if you have been listening to this series and you are doing this and feeling some kind of pressure in your heart, you miss the point of what John has been teaching. John has been saying that if the Spirit of God lives in a professed Christian, then they will be doing these things. And as we will see here in just a moment, not just doing them to do, in that, to do them, right, but enjoying the work of the ministry. God's commands are not a burden on them. John has been saying that if the Spirit of God lives in a professed Christian, then they will be doing these things unlike the Pharisees. We, we can certainly fake our righteousness like the Pharisees were doing, but if you are, you are just like them. And as Jesus said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in summation of this long section on perfected love, John concludes by saying this, it is our proposition for the day, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Think about that for a moment, right? We hear keep these commandments and immediately, I don't know about you, but certainly somewhere inside of me, I go, oh, right? And then we read this second clause and his commandments are not burdensome and we go, ah, <laughs> right? I'm so grateful that it's true, that there is grace. We'll see today that the genuine Christian, number one, will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, they will be born again. Number three, they will be loving the church, and they will joyfully submit to following the lifestyles and the teaching of the Scriptures. Let's dig in to the first truth, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. John begins with, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to notice and maybe even take your pen or pencil or highlighter and notice that Jesus was the Christ in the past, and that is not what John is saying. He is saying currently, in the present, Jesus is the Christ. He is currently the Christ. Friends, the title Christ and its implications are unfortunately lost and too often times on our American ears. Christ is this transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is derived from the Hebrew word, an idea of Messiah, meaning anointed. The title is synonymous uh, oftentimes with Lord in the New Testament. And Lord, of course, carries with it this idea of a man who is, especially in this first century, regarded as deity. And therefore, in every sense, a man who has some or is regarded as de deity is regarded as a master. Our ears just don't do well with that, right? When we think about this idea that somebody is the ultimate authority and what they say, goes. This is the context of what is happening, and, and the context of what John is writing here is that there is one Lord that you got to say as a Roman citizen, and it certainly was not the person of Jesus Christ. Often the closest thing that an American do to can experience this type of an authority structure is to be or join the military. I know that we are in a military community. I had the great pleasure of serving. And one of the things that sticks out in your mind if you have done so is that you will 
show up in a bus with a number of other people who have decided to serve, and you will have signed on this line. And when you signed on this line, you signed over the rights to your life. You didn't get to have an opinion about how you were going to treat those who were in your rank structure. You were told how you were going to get to treat how you were going to treat them. You were going to call them by rank and last name, and if you didn't, you would be in trouble. And if you kept getting in trouble, they would kick you out, and there would be severe consequences for not following the rules. You're told how to fold your socks, exactly where to put them in the drawer. Don't do it on your own. Don't do it how you want to do it. Every time you fold your socks just like this, and every time you put them in the drawer right where they told you to put them, and you fold your t-shirt exactly how it is supposed to be folded, and you lay it right where it's supposed to. And if you do not do these things, you're in trouble. You are not the master of your life. You are not the Lord. Those who are are above you in the rank structure, are. This is the idea of Christ. It's the idea of Messiah. It is the idea of this ruler who, is, who was to come in the Old Testament, who came in the person of Christ. And we need to not just blow by these statements and, and not understand what John is saying here. Whoever believes that Jesus is Christ, we might just take that for granted, but we need to just pause and go, Jesus is ruler, Jesus is master, Jesus is God. If you can say that, if you believe that. Is what John is saying. Jesus is title Christ, a title for the ultimate ruler is used of him 514 times in the New Testament. This is who Jesus was and is and how he was to be comprehended. In Acts chapter 18, verse 5, as the book of Acts is, is unfolding and you're moving towards the end, Paul would, as we know, often go to new cities. He would go to a Jewish synagogue and he would preach Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 5 records this in chapter 18. You can kind of feel the tension here. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, literally the Messiah. He's telling them he has come, the boss, the king, the Messiah, the anointed one of the Old Testament, the, the promised one has been here. One commentator did a wonderful job of pointing out some of the overview of the Old Testament expectation and prophetic nature of this ruler, the Christ, saying this, that the Messiah is the same person as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He is the same as the seed of Abraham in Genesis 22.18. He is the prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110.4. He is the rod out of the stem of Jesse in Isaiah. He is the Emmanuel, the virgin's son, Isaiah 7.14. He is the branch of Jehovah in Isaiah 4.2 and the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1. This is he of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Beloved, I, it's hard for us, right? We look back, we accept Christ, we accept that title, but what an exciting time for Paul to have been alive and going to Jewish synagogues and, and stopping in and say, the Messiah has come. 
the one who has been promised, the one who we have looked forward to, and he has risen, and he would tell those 11 remaining apostles on, on that mount, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Beloved, the Apostle Paul was solemnly testifying to all the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He told the church in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Sounds kind of weird, right? In a culture that doesn't understand the importance of the word Lord, the importance of the word Christ, the importance of the word Messiah, who we really kind of run around like little kings of our own world and we make up our own authority structures and we badmouth whatever president or, or set of Congress people are in. We, we, just, we just speak freely about these people. But here, Paul tells the Corinthians, no one in this culture, in this context, no one says out loud that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And why? Why? You'd be murdered for that. You'd be imprisoned for that. In that Roman culture, to call anyone Lord, your master, your deity, except for Caesar, was certain death. As a matter of fact, church history records that throughout the 2nd and 3rd century, Roman soldiers would often, in their attempt to to Rome to put out this movement called Christianity, little Christs. They would go from town to town with bowls of incense burning, and they would carry these, these Roman soldiers, and they'd pull up to a town or a field where people were working, and everyone would have to come, and they would have to pay homage to Caesar. And they would be given some incense, and they would have to throw the incense into the bowl, and then they, at the throwing of those incense, what they would have to say is, Caesar is... Lord. Of course, a Christian would not do that. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord. There is one Lord. And this is the context. When we read this thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's like, well, who can't say Jesus is Lord? You could try it right now. Try it. Try it. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> it's not what's going on. You can't just say that. A genuine Christian would not curse Jesus, and when they refused to call Caesar Lord, they were often imprisoned or they were slain right on the spot, making Jesus' teaching about counting the cost, right, and taking up your cross a little bit heavier than we might think of it in our time and culture. Friends, this culture of master, slave, of Lord, Messiah, or Christ is what John is referring to when he says that a professing Christian can have assurance Know how, can you see how that would, would give you some assurance of your salvation by saying that Jesus uh, is the Christ and believing that Jesus is the Christ? This title Christ is not a flyby statement in the context of New Testament Roman history. And even if, and in some countries, I would say, of the world today, if you were to just go and profess Christ, you would be 
deeply persecuted. And as our country runs as far as it can from any idea of real truth and any idea of real morality, no doubt there is coming a day when you say that Jesus is my Lord and I will not do that at work and I will not affirm somebody's wrong sexual relationship by going to their party. You probably won't get slain and laid on the floor, but you may get fired. Beloved, a professing Christian will not be ashamed of proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the supreme ruler of the universe. And when a Christian is persecuted for their commitment to Christ, they can have assurance of the genuineness of their faith. That's what John is doing here. He's bringing assurance. He's not writing to those who are unbelievers. In 1 John, he says, I write to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Why is he writing? To assure them. And if these things are going on in your life, be assured you're a believer. And how is it those persecuted saints could make that statement that Jesus alone was Lord? They were born of God. The Spirit of God lived within them. This brings us to our second truth, that, uh, that a professing Christian will have assurance of their salvation because they have been born of God. Many of you will know that in John's Gospel, Jesus is talking in the third chapter to a very religious man named Nicodemus. He says to him in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Sounds strange to very normal, logical ears, doesn't it? So Nicodemus responds very normally and very logically. He says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus sums up his answer just a couple verses later in John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is a new birth, a born of Godness. Friends, if you were with us here this morning, you have not been born of God. You would not be able to, in a culture who hates God, stand up and profess that Jesus is the Christ. You're going to shrink back. You're going to not tell people that you're a believer. You're going to fall into ways and sins. It would separate you from the presence of God. You would not be able to maintain a profession of Christianity, especially under persecution and pressure, if you're not born of God. Like the Pharisees, you may be able to fake it for a while. I think in America it's a lot easier to do, where we have a freedom to show up. You could fake it for a while. You could dress nice and do your hair well. I did mine this morning. I was a little worried about the wind, so I made sure it was nice and tight. It is bad when your beard blows around now. I mean, you know, it's windy. <laughs> we might be able to fake it for a while in a culture that's accepting of Christianity, but it won't last long in the burdensomeness of following the commands and showing up on time and reading your Bible and all those things kind of fall away. You quit doing those things. Why? Because maybe you have not been born of God. Jesus would respond to this need. It's his purpose, his life's calling to 
come to the earth and call people unto a new covenant. And he says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. This is the call. The issue is the Pharisees, they're doing it, right? They're trying to do everything they can to look good on the outside, to earn their righteousness. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that, every jaw in the, in the place probably falls on the ground. It's like, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I, I'll never be as righteous as these guys. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? Unless your righteousness surpasses that, you will not enter the kingdom. Why? There is a new covenant. There is a spirit of God that must come in and must inhabit and dwell your life and make you new from the inside out. And Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like, what am I going to do? Go into my mother's womb a second time? No, but the spirit of God will come into you. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, repentance implies that you turn from the life you are living. You make Jesus your Lord right? Your master, your president, if that helps you. You don't have an option. Put yourself in this place where when you repent, you're signing your life over like you would in the military, right? And you're saying, I give up. I'll take your life. I'll follow after you. What is the gospel? Jesus says to believe in the gospel. It is the good news. Why is it good news? Because God crushed his sinless son on behalf of people like us, people like me. And rather than having to pay the penalty of my sin, the Lord paid it on the cross. His life for mine. My unrighteousness for his righteousness. I cannot earn it. I cannot be good enough. I cannot uh, say enough prayers. I cannot show up to church enough. I can't dress right enough. Jesus paid it all. He did it all. That is the gospel. The Bible says that if we confess Jesus as Lord, this is a reference, right? Not to just something our mind should run off to, but as master. It's a reference to living for Jesus, following Jesus, picking up your cross and going after him, dropping your old lifestyle. The Bible says if we confess Jesus as Lord... And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. God will not punish us, but rather he will gift us the Holy Spirit and we will be born of God. We'll be born of God. It is the only way that we're going to say Jesus is Christ. It is the only way that we're going to live a non-pharisaical lifestyle is by having the Spirit of God indwell us. This brings us to our third truth. It is the truth that a professing Christian will have assurance of their salvation when they love the children of God, the church. John has said already, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and now says whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Loves the child born of him. Maybe this seems strange, but it, it should make sense in our ears, right? We cannot give birth to ourselves. We cannot force ourselves to be alive. But yet God is the one who gives the Spirit, and then you are born again. And the child who is born again will love their other children. There's, there 
siblings. Just remember that agape, seen here as our word love, is not simply an emotion, but rather manifested love. Manifested love. So the child of God will manifest their love towards other children of God. Specifically manifested, right, in this selfless, is this selfless action towards those who do not deserve it is the perfect picture. And in our text, manifested toward the children of God, very specifically. That is the church. This is how we would have assurance, is that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is not just have an emotion. All certainly, we would love to have emotion. I like to think that I love you emotionally and would shepherd you well and care for your souls well. And I would hope that each one of you, as you look around in the room, would have a, a deep emotional and desire to love and appreciate those around you. But that's not what the Scripture is saying here. This is the idea that we would come together, we would commit together, that we would work together and deal with the sins that are going to come up, and we would, uh, we would apply the salve of the gospel when we fail. We would love one another. Effectively, John is saying that if the Holy Spirit dwells in a person who calls themselves a Christian, they will love the brethren. That is the church. Friends, love of the church is one, if not the largest theme found in this letter. If not the largest theme found in this letter. Quickly, I'm going to go through these just as a way, and this is not even the totality of them, but I do this by way of reminder that if you're going to be assured that you are a Christian, you will love the church. You say, prove it? All right. First John 3.10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us, that's the church, not love, that's each other, with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 1 John 4.7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And last week, we finished with this. 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I've met uh, a lot of people in our country in this region specifically of our country who claim to be Christians who want nothing to do with corporate worship, let alone bear any fruit of self-sacrificially loving the church the way Christ loved us, the way God loved us in Christ. They have, they have no church in the first place, and so how could they love or serve that church and therefore, how can they love God? First John says that they cannot. We must continue to share the love of God with these. 
They are at the very least extremely deceived or they are unbelievers and destined for hell. When we meet people and they have no church and they want no part of the church and they just want to run off on their own but they want to claim Christianity, 1 John should be screaming in our ears, it cannot be, it cannot be, it cannot be. And oftentimes the reason is, well, I don't like organized religion and that pastor sinned and that person sinned and somebody did such and such and so I don't go anymore. Well, that's not proof that you're a Christian. It's proof that you're not a Christian. The idea is that you've not understood the gospel. You have not understood that we are going to sin and we need to be saved and we need to be saved by grace. And so when we hear that, we must reach out, we must love, we must correct hey, can we get some coffee? Let's go to lunch. You turn to these verses and First John and maybe challenge them. Challenge them with the gospel. This is how God loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can you say that you're a Christian, but you have no concept of walking out forgiveness of sin? It can't be possible. This love of brethren is critical assurance of salvation for anyone calling themselves a Christian. So as if it had not been discussed enough, or discussed enough, excuse me, in chapters three and four, the theme continues here in chapter five with these verse, whoever these words, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. It's a lot packed in a couple sentences or clauses, isn't there? And verse 2 is the correlation of verse 1 saying, by this we know, that is an experiential type of knowledge, gnosko, that we love the children of God when we love God. And how do we agape God? How do we act? How do we choose volitionally to love God? It makes sense, right? When we understand this word love is a choosing, when we see these next uh, words, observe his commandments where we choose to do his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Notice that this is two sides of the same coin. Whoever loves the Father loves the children. And we turn right around in verse 2. Whoever loves the children loves God. It makes sense. The verb to keep is this Greek verb, tereo, I remember I punished my <laughs> wife and children in my seminary years, which seemed to never be ending. But during those years where we were learning the languages, and uh, I would spend about two hours a day on the, on the road, and I had an app on my telephone that had flashcards on it so we could learn vocabulary. And so while I was spending all this time on the road, I would just go through my Flashcards, and you're always trying to figure out some way to memorize, or at least for me, what these words meant and uh, or meant. And so, tereo, when it would come up, the verb, um, I would think of in my mind. It's a, I don't know why, this doesn't really make sense, but this is how I made it make sense. All right, bear with me. It sounds like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? It just sounds like, right? And this idea is that it's to keep, and that's how I would, would memorize it in my mind, is if I had a Tyrannosaurus Rex as a pet, 
then he would keep guard, he would take care of, he would protect. And that is the idea. Not only, right, is the child of God going to do, he's going to observe, that's the idea of observe, but they are going to keep, they're going to protect, they're going to guard the commandments of God. It's going to be precious like gold to them. That uh, The Spirit of God is going to be speaking to them through the words of God. Hereo. Beloved, we've seen that a child of God will confess and believe Jesus is the Christ. They will be born again and love God and his children. And unlike the hypocritical Pharisees, a genuine child of God will not only guard, but they will protect the scriptures and they will do what God has said. They will do it. And notice here is the key difference between the Pharisaical Christianity that some get caught up, and others do not, in genuine Christianity. Here's the difference. Pharisaical Christianity is just follow these set of rules, right? Genuine Christianity is going to say the Spirit of God is going to, want, is going to make me want to follow these set of rules. I'm going to have a desire to follow these set of rules. Both of those types of people will walk right next to each other on this earth. One will be burdened with the idea of doing it, and the other will be free and loving the Lord, doing it without a burdensome attitude. They will keep God's commandments, and they will not be burdened. The Greek word baras, translated burdensome, means to be a source of difficulty or trouble, listen here, because of demands made. A source of difficulty or trouble because of demands made. John is saying, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That should give us assurance. What the Spirit is revealing here, it is not the observing all that God has commanded. Uh, is, uh, it is not that just observing him won't come with its difficulties. It certainly will, right? When we look to the word of God, it challenges us. We see the kind of life that we are supposed to be living and it's going to come with difficulties. Add to those difficulties the idea that we're supposed to, the context here is loving one another. And when we get together, right, and we begin to know each other a little bit better, and we begin to understand each other's sin, and that starts to bother us just a little bit, right? It should give us reason to, uh, uh, to walk in grace. But walking in grace should be not burdensome. We should love somebody because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, speaking of the power to overcome burdensome situations, spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Beloved, I want to pause for just a second and ask you, is that the life you're living as a Christian? Are you grinding it out? Are you able to work and do the commandments of God and they're not burdensome because the Spirit of God is living in you? And out of your innermost being, there are rivers of living water flowing. I understand that the 
Church is full of the potential for sin. It's full of the potential for frustration, anger, and every kinds of traumatic circumstance happens inside of church. Some from church people who know the Lord and love them. Others who come to church and don't. But maybe in its worst, and I don't know why it is in our nature to do this, we can become pharisaical in ourselves, even with the Spirit of God living in us, demanding things and actions of people, laying burdens on those that we dearly love. Those burdens can look like expecting people to dress a certain way or read a certain Bible version or uh, question people's commitment based on their attendance or their giving or all kinds of weird stuff we begin to burden ourselves and others with. And we become pharisaical. God would not have us to be there. He would not have us to act that way. We're to know each other. We are to be known by the world for our love of one another. All of those things that I mentioned, they certainly can be good conversations, but they should never be burdensome for God's people. We should never lay them on somebody like a heavy yoke and expect that their life would be perfect as if yours was. And in light of all this teaching on selflessly loving the church, one could easily feel forced or burdened to serve in the church. But to do so without the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance would be a burden too heavy for anyone. Let us not shy away, beloved, from difficult work. Serving others is difficult but eternity is worth it. Take a moment and think through the differences between between being difficult and being burdensome. Maybe a place for you to repent and renew your walk with the Lord. Maybe you've been attempting to serve the church for years but feel burdened. You don't feel like rivers of living water are coming forth from you. Maybe rivers of Negative words are coming out of your mouth. Maybe you feel like you have to serve. Take a break. Take a break. You feel burdened because of the lack of the Holy Spirit in your life? Don't let that go away. It may very well be that the Spirit of God does not live in your life. Maybe you have served your entire life because you were told to show up You were told to dress like this. You were told to talk like this. You have been told to do all that. Don't. Stop. Does the Spirit of God exist in your life? Here it says, right, John is saying, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew, or what He said in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not sure what kind of burden you may have in your life, what kind of weight, where it's coming from. I'm not sure if you have discerned well between the difference between difficult and burdensome, you've got to walk that line. I've I, I got to argue in an American culture of freedom where everything that is difficult seems bad. 
It just seems bad. We'd have to work. We've got to show up on time. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about here. Pick up your cross, right? The work of the ministry is a lot of work. You could probably uh, talk to the Sphinx here, and they might tell you something about that. It's a lot of work, but it doesn't mean that it has to be burdensome. It should be a joy and the Spirit of God driving you and, and, and enabling you and, and giving you the animation, right, to accomplish the tasks that have to get done. The idea is that, yes, they are difficult, but God should be the one who is fueling your life. And if he is not, you need to ask these questions. And you need to do just what Jesus says, come unto him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Beloved, we've seen today that the genuine Christian will believe that Jesus is the Christ. They will be born again. They will be selflessly loving the church. And in summation to this long section that we've titled Perfected Love, the Spirit says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I pray that as you go about your week, that you would take some time and consider these things. Where are you at? Are you just not working because you're lazy? And things are difficult? Are you not working because you're lazy, things are difficult, and the Spirit of God is not impassioning you to do so? Have you just gotten sleepy? I don't know. The Lord will certainly point these things out to you. And I pray that as you consider the questions that we have in the text and your bulletin, that God would work mightily in you and draw you near. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it challenges us and how, Lord, its richness reminds us of, Lord, of your character, that you are the boss, that you have commandments, but you have not left us out on some ship without a motor, Lord, that you are willing to give us your spirit that we might walk in such a way that rivers of living water flow out of us. I pray, Lord, for all of those in here who may be tired and maybe burdensome and weary, Lord, that you would refresh them by your Spirit if they do not know you. I pray, God, they would reach out to know you. And I pray, Lord, that if they have just hardened their hearts through difficult situations in the church or life, that you might rub off those calluses, Lord, and Remind them of that heart of flesh you've given them. Lord, we know that it takes you to do all these things, convict of sin, restore us to, to a right place with you. We ask, Lord, that we might cooperate with you in these things. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.